All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place podcast. I am your guest, your host. I just said guest. <laughs> I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and I'm super excited to have my guest with me here today, um, Greg Williams of Baylor College of Medicine. And he's here to talk about his upcoming book release, which is coming out Friday, right? Is it February 1st? Yes. Yay. And um, the possibility of a radio show. So, yeah. All right. So welcome. Hi. It's an honor to be uh, with you, even though we're hundreds and thousands of miles away, but it is awesome. I've heard so many great things about you, and I am one of your followers and uh, one of your biggest fans, probably. Thank oh, you so thanks. If I could reach through, I'd give you a big hug. Thank you for that. <laughs> that was wonderful. Well, I'm just, we were just talking beforehand about, um, about your book and, um, again, I'm in the process of finishing mine up. The the proposal's done, and I know what a big undertaking that is, not only to write it, but especially about the, the topic of what yours is about. So, um, yeah, so tell us about yourself and what it is you do and, and everything that's going on. Yeah, I'm on the uh, leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine that's located just a couple blocks just right here to my left. And um, uh, on that team, I'm in the OBGYN department. And uh, I take care of the doctors there and make sure the administrative staff and everything is running smoothly. And that's located inside the Texas Children's Hospital. It's located inside the Texas Medical Center. So I have a, a great relationship with a lot of medical uh, personnel, doctors, physicians, counselors, those, those types of people. And um, the book that I just, I just got this kind of copy just uh, yesterday, and then I got 200 copies a few minutes ago. This has been a long journey. It's taken me several years. Um, I wanted to put it down but uh, on paper what was going on, but I promised myself that I wouldn't share the story until after my mom passed. Oh. Because I didn't want to break her heart any more than what it was. Um, I so get that. My mom is 83, and I think that's why I've drugged my feet with putting those finishing touches on mine is because, like, I so relate to that. I, I get it. Yeah. yeah. I think after you read the book, I think you kind of all, um, me and the world have kind of discovered that she probably did know, but she was in denial. Right. And when I finally came out and told her, she was just so angry and bitter, and it, it really changed her life. Uh, I didn't tell her everything. Right. Um, I still haven't told the world everything. There's still some things that I haven't even been able to open up that last closet door to. Um, so I started writing this down uh, several years ago, three or four years ago. And uh, then I kept stopping, putting it down. Stopping. Yes. Uh, and then I'm affiliated with the church. And I didn't really know if the little old ladies in the church would really want to know that kind of stuff about them. Right. Uh, so I really had a battle. I also had a battle with my kids. Uh, knowing the details of my daily sexual abuse by my dad. Yeah. So when I finally got to the point where I was uh, saying, okay, the book's going to happen. I'm going to at least write it, whether I send it to anybody or print it out or whatever. So I just started writing one chapter after chapter. And in the first chapter, is all about a dream that I have, and it's called the nightmare in the darkness. And and I have this dream, Terry. Every time I sleep for very long, I I sleep forty five minutes to an hour, and then I I wake up and I look at the ceiling or I get up and walk around, uh, and then I kind of so I kind of power nap. Anytime I sleep for any longevity, I have this dream. Wow. Dream was really strange because it really it only makes sense to me. And it, as a matter of fact, the publisher said, "Why do we need this in the book?" And I said, "Well, if you don't want it, pull it." And they at one time had a pull, but then they decided, "No, these are your words. We're going to go ahead and do it." They changed it a little bit because they thought it told too much about what was going on inside the book later on. So we kind right. of. But it's a dream of me waking up in the middle of the night, in the middle of a cemetery. Um. And going up to the tombstones and the, the moon shining through 
and I could start reading the, the tombstones and it would have a date and then it would say, uh, you know, uh, uh, Little League Summer. Uh, and then another one would say gang rape. And another one with the date would say another event. And every time I came to a tombstone, it was about another experience, traumatic experience that happened in my life. And I could feel as this dream goes on, the nightmare goes off, my heart started racing. I started sweating and I started wondering what's going on. And a major part of the dream is that there's a house on the other side of the cemetery that has the lights on and I'm trying to make it to the house. And I realize safety is there, but I have to go through the cemetery to get to it. Oh my gosh. I never make it to the house because I always wake up screaming, blood curling screams. Wow. I did that the other day and I live in, in a house here where there's a lot of people close. I would say, oh no, they may have heard me. Right. But that, that truth of to get to the light, I had to deal with every tombstone became something real to me. For me to be able to, to see any type of healing in my life, I needed to face every one of the events that was on those tombstones. So I started taking those tombstones one by one and dealing with them. Wow. It kind of, I, I get this question all the time because I speak all over. Um, well, how do you know that you were four years old when you uh, first remembered that event, the first time I was abused by my dad? Uh, if it wasn't for the internet, I would have never found out when it was, when I could remember the first time. But I remember a Christmas catalog. Remember those old Christmas catalogs that had yes. the Sears? Oh, I Sears. loved getting that. Boards and J.C. Penney's, and, and there was a Sears catalog. Yes, I loved this one Sears catalog because it had Dennis the Menace, the cartoon character, on the front. And I remember that explicitly. Why I remember that? I love Dennis the Menace. But why did I remember that? I don't know, but I remember that. So I just one day was thinking about this and jotting down things in my journal. I thought I'm just going to check the internet. Christmas catalog with Dennis Menace on the cover immediately the Sears Christmas catalog came up and I typed any other and I kept on searching searching that was the only year and that dated it 1967 so I knew wait I was born in 63 right there it is I was four years old when my dad ripped that Christmas catalog out of my hands and pulled my pajama bottoms down to my ankles oh that I remember that because he used that Christmas to be able to tell me, you know, Santa Claus don't come to little boys unless they're good to their dads. And that's how he started in working inside of my mind. And then he threw the fear factor in. And if you don't, you won't get anything. And then the ultimate guilt in your brothers, I had two older brothers, one five and one 10 years older, your brothers won't get anything either. Wow. He, he took the catalog, put it to the side, and I, that's the first abuse that I remember, wearing my pajamas that I had on, and I, I talk about it vividly. The book's really raw, uh, not uh, obscene, but it's very clear what's going on. Right. And, and then I think one of my greatest disappointments is when I got to Christmas that year, I didn't get one thing on the list that I wanted. And I realized that even Christmas Eve that year, my, my dad abused me. And that was the beginning of me remembering. And then I, I worked from that point forward uh, until my memory became very clear. Little league days, summer parties at the pool, in our pool in the backyard. Um, and once you, I know when I, I did EMDR therapy, well, first off, I want to say, just acknowledge what you've been through. Um, and just, um, you know, I wish there were words other than I'm sorry, but 
um, you know, I am sorry that you had to go through that, but I admire your courage and, and the world, um, you know, needs your light and how amazing of you to shine it. And so thank you for that. I mean, truly, it's beautiful. Um, but I tell people all the time, you know, that you, one of the things I say when I give my speeches and when I talk is that I tell people you have to go through the darkness to get to the light. And so when you were talking about that and being in the cemetery and moving towards that house, that's the first thing I thought was, oh my gosh, it was, it was his soul. It was his heart. It was something telling him you have to go through this darkness to get to that light and to get to that, to that place. And when I did EMDR therapy, which was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's eye movement. Yeah, it's eye movement, um, desensitization, and reprocessing. And so I remember my therapist telling me um, I had compartmentalized everything. Remember the old Dewey Decimal System at the library, and you had the books, you know, and the, the drawers you had to pull out. You know, there was no internet. And <laughs> so you had to find, you know, what you're looking for. Well, I, that's what I did with my traumas. And so we basically sat there and kind of like you with the, with the tombstones, we would pick one. Um, and we eventually ended up, I like to think of it as just, we just kind of dumped all those Dewey decimal drawers on the middle of the floor. And I had this giant heap of traumas and we just started slowly sorting through them. Um, and yeah, but it was really cool. You know, I, I experienced date rape, um, lost my virginity at um, 16. And I was like, how do I, how do I come up with dates? Well, I keep memories, like little things. And so I had a box. As a matter of fact, it's sitting right here on the floor. And so I had this box and I was going through and looking um, through all these envelopes. I had kept notes from like my BFFs, you know, we would, no texting, we would write a note and sneak it under the desk. And um, this particular envelope had uh, this particular boyfriend's name on it. And so when I opened it, it was newspaper articles about his family. His family was involved in some things here in Cincinnati. They were kind of a bigger deal. But I had, there was a little piece of paper that said, worst night of my life, and it had a date on it. And I instantaneously knew what it was. And I was like, okay, I have a date. Like, it was almost validation for <laughs> that, yes, this really did happen. This really did go on. So, It, yeah. it was um, an opening of the Pandora's box per se that I didn't know if I wanted open, but I needed. It. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I saw the date, it was like, this happened all my life. Yeah. Four years old. Or I don't remember one day that I wasn't sexually abused. And that's the first sentence in my book. I can't remember one day that I wasn't sexually abused by my father growing up as a child. All, all, the way up to almost my 17th birthday. That's what I was going to ask when it when it ended or how you got out of it. It's, it's so, I, I can't even fathom this myself. And I, I, I would understand why people would go, I don't understand uh, how you can be somewhat normal. Right. I would literally leave a date, take her home at 16 years old, Drive her home, and I had to be home at midnight. You never, not one minute past midnight. You didn't mess, because you didn't have cell phones. I'm running late. Never the only right. day. Right. I would drop her off, drive home, knowing that just as soon as I walked through that door, I was going to be abused by my dad. And that was horrific to me that I was just kissing my girlfriend goodnight. Wow. Shortly, my dad's going to be kissing all over me. And I, I still have that thought, why didn't I say no? And when I finally stopped it almost, it was almost my 17th birthday. I remember, and I go vividly in this in the book, I remember fighting back for the first time I was coming home. Um, and I, I already had it in my mind, no more, I'm done. And he started in and I, I screamed, no. 
and he leaned back and went, huh, well, you know, that type of thing. And then he started pinning me down again. And I immediately went to that normal state of, I just become limp as a dish rag. Okay, go ahead and do whatever you're gonna do. And then something uh, erupted out of me of no. And then I looked at him and I said, I swear to God, I will tell everybody what you've done to me. At that point, he pushed me back, stood up, looked at me, started out the room, and he said something, and, and I, I can't, I, I can't think of it right now, but he said, "Good night, great." He called me by my first name. That was like, it wasn't son. It wasn't babe or whatever he used to call me. It was great. And there was a, a literal knife that went into me. And I almost, I caught myself going, oh. and I, I had to battle that in my mind. Come on back. Go ahead. Right. I want you to love me. You need to call me son. I just lost my dad. And I, I, I battled that still in my mind. And he walked out, slammed the door. He never called me son from that day forward. He lived for, you know, what he was in his 60s. And, I, and we, he never abused me again. It was that quick of a cutoff. But I remember that stress of, I just lost my dad, even though he abused me every day, sometimes right. every day. Right. Um, the mind games that abusers do to their victims are absolutely horrendous. And he was an excellent manipulator. I was um, just gonna say the manipulation, right? To where I almost invited him back. No, come on back. Just, just call me son again, dad, come on. Right. Um, that, that was when it ended. I was almost 17 years old. It's close to my birthday. Wow. Born in July, so it was close to that. And I think it does come to that point where you just say, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. So, so who, is your, who is your target audience? Who do you want to reach with your book and with your story? You know, I, I personally think um, anybody can get something out of this. Because everybody that I speak to, even from the doctors, counselors, parents, church groups, uh, the advocacy center that's just on the other side of town here, uh, everybody that I, I speak to can get something out of it. But I think the target is those that have been abused or those that are dealing with people that they know that have been abused. I've had several people, hundreds of people, that have emailed me or called me, and I try to answer the phone and answer every email uh, within the day. I, I'm one of those, I'm very... OCD. So when I get an email, I'm not happy until I answer back. <laughs> That's what I was doing right before you and I connected. I was like, all right, I have four more emails to get through. <laughs> I'm afraid at the office, but it really starts annoying when you have all these hundreds, you know. So, um, and, and people have told me that the emotions that I, I share, they can relate to and it tags into their own emotions. Like, okay, I know where that one's at. I can relate to that. So I think the, the, the victims that have been traumatized in any type of trauma can pull out some of the pain that is in there, some of the uh, OCD things that I deal with, the PTSD things, and, and guilt and shame, what I call the evil twins. Um, they can get that out of there. Parents, teachers, um, counselors, I, I think, but probably... The, the key target are those that have been abused and or know somebody that has. Right. And it's a quick read for like 170 pages, but it's a deep, uh, I remember when Carrie read it, she, she read it over Thanksgiving and she said she just sat down and cried uh, for a long time and it really messed her up for a while. And I have people at the office that tell me um, the same thing, Greg, only can make it to chapter three. Right. So, Chapter five, and it starts getting a little better uh, with the uh, the outcome. Even my kids, I let them read it 
chapter by chapter as I read it, as I wrote it. So I would send them chapter one, and they would write back, okay, wow, didn't know that, you know, and they would share their deep thoughts. And then when I finally got around four or five, uh, I remember Victor, uh, one of my middle sons, said, um, Dad, this is so dark. When, when are we going to see? He said, I'm glad that I know you're okay now because this is terrible. Right. Just, but I've wanted to take you there and then show how I was quiet for 35 years plus before I told anybody yeah. about it. And because of that, that's how ACEs came into my world. ACEs gave me a new family of friends. Uh, that ACEs connection is... Yes. Uh, Believable. I love it. I put it in, in more of my, in my appendix at the very end. Make sure if you care, you need to go on this side. Connect with some people because they will love you the way you are and help you because they've done me that way. Yes, and I agree. I have so many friends off that and have and only met them like I'm meeting you. Yeah, right. Friend. We met through Aces, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, and Carrie that I talk to every day, I met the Aces, and uh, just many, many people. So it's just a wonderful resource. But being quiet for that long was devastating and almost killed me. Almost killed me. Yep. Been there, done that. I get it, and it it does. It it takes its toll. Um, you know, like I like to think when I finally started to. Um, reach that I call it a, sh a shift happened in my life um, and when I finally ended up you know in EMDR and started utilizing and researching and researching came across ACEs um, but yeah there was just that everything was frozen it was stuck inside of me and it had no way to get out I hadn't processed any of it um, it was just this unresolved trauma and then once I started processing it it was hard as hell, but once it started to come out, um, wow, did the healing start. And so I'm so glad you've started to reach that place of healing, too. Well, um, I became so good at playing the game of, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. Yeah, everything's great. I'm good. Very successful in, in every job I've had. Uh, very Nobody would ever, I always was smiling, I always was the most upbeat person at the office. I was always whistling, walking down the hallway. I had that down so pat that I never, ever let anybody inside where I, they could see behind the mask. Yes. If I, I have not had a good relationship all my life because I was never real with anybody. Right. And Really, it's affected every relationship I have ever had. And now that I'm just now becoming real, I realize that I can tell someone like you what's happened to me in every detail. And you may still like me. It is still, there's still a fear inside me. But I can deal with that now. And I'm trying to be as 100% authentic as I can. But boy, it took... I'm 55. It took over 50 years for me to finally get a hold of that. Um, and it's, I get it. I've been, been there, done that. Yeah, when you finally, what a, it's just exposing vulnerability. Um, yeah, it can be terrifying. And I would try to fix everybody else's problems. Yes. Find answers. And you know, they would come to me and say, oh, great, what am I supposed to do about this? How am I supposed to handle this? And I'd have all those great answers, but I couldn't heal myself. Right. I wasn't listening to what I was saying, but boy, I could sure spew it. And now I'm starting to understand uh, being real. I have had so many people that just embraced. We like who you are now because right. it's not a game. This is who you are. And we see the, the true happiness, the, the true vulnerability, the true authenticity, uh, and the genuineness. And it's, it's made all the difference in relationships now. Yes. I, my, one of my dearest friends in all the world says that there's just an authenticity that comes out of people when you finally like, live your truth. 
Um, and that's, and I think that's what, now some people don't like that authenticity about me at all. <laughs> and they run the other way. But I think to myself, sometimes I wonder, I told a friend of mine that yesterday and I said, we were, we were texting and I said, keep putting your truth out there. And she said, you know, she was talking about, she was feeling rejected. And I said, no, I said, you just haven't found the right people to connect to that yet. Keep being authentic. Keep being real. Um, you're, you'll, reach, you'll reach the right people, and it'll happen. So, And truth, seriously, as the Bible says, will set you free. Yes. Really, really does. Um, yeah. And I became such a good, and I hate to put it this way, a liar. Yeah. Lying to myself. And I look. I still have problems when I look in the mirror. What I see back, I still don't like what I see. Do you do positive affirmations or any of those things? Now, uh, yeah. But there, for all those years, I just I didn't even want to use them. Right. And right. now I'm starting to. You know, I, I am somebody special. I do. Yeah. Have, I do have. You know, there's value in me, and I am able to help other people. And when I've given that all up to other people, it always comes back tenfold of, wow, thank you. Wow, these emails. And, the, 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 and I'm not doing it for the praise, but just that uh, satisfaction of maybe, I hate to put it this way, maybe that's why I went through it. No, I've, I've said that to myself like, there has to be a purpose. There has to be a reason. And people tell me that. Terry, you survived all of that for a reason. And so I'm saying, Greg, you survived all of that for a reason because, um, yeah, you're, you're helping others to heal. And you know how close I came to dying when I was 48? I had open heart surgery. Wow. Um, I went to a rheumatologist in St. Louis because that's the area that I'm from. And a little resident came in. And I always tell this story to the doctors because they always get a, a hoot out of it. Uh, a resident came in and said, is it okay if I, I check you out? I said, sure. So he started checking me out and listened my heart. Do you have a heart murmur? No. Mm -hmm. Never had a heart murmur. You ever, ever had trouble with your heart? No. And finally, I said, can you go get the real doctor? And I, I didn't mean it to be me. Uh, so he goes out, the, the real doctor comes in. Of course, a resident is a real doctor. Right, uh, but we're getting kicked out of that, a fellow resident, and then uh, the, the doctor comes in and he checked me out and he said, "Sir, you got a problem. We need to get you downstairs now and see what's going on." And within mm -hmm. I had open heart surgery, one of my bowels just gave out. And I remember when I was in Columbia, Missouri, uh, going in and meeting with the heart surgeon. He told me that Greg, we don't have a medical reason why this happened. 48 years old, we have no clue why your heart, that part of your heart, just gave out. Why all these little umbrella strings that hold that uh, artery there just started popping. So we don't understand. We don't know if it'll happen again. We don't know if this will fix it. We have no, because we don't have a medical reason of why it's happening. So I went through that, made it through that, moved to Texas, and this started coming out. And then when I got in front, of a couple doctors that knew about ACEs and they were looking at my book of uh, the rough draft and they said, Hey, and they read it. Have you ever heard of ACEs? I said, no, that's exactly what you were going through. So it was stress. Absolutely. He said yeah. it was so bottled up for all those years that you just literally popped from the inside out. Wow. started discovering that on ACES Connection, when I started discovering the facts behind it and started uh, the education and the research behind it. Oh, it yeah. A light bulb, a flashing lights were going ding, 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 ding. This is it. And then at that point, I said, I have to tell as many people as I can, you have to fix, go back to all these traumatic events and, and discover what that is. Right. Uh, will come out in an evil, ugly way if you don't. I would have been a statistic. I would have been dead if that little resident didn't happen to go, hey, can I practice on you? They would have never caught that. Wow. 
Wow. That's oh, really? angels, some angels at work right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I'm really a big uh, fan of what ACEs, what they do, right. uh, how they help, and the research and this resiliency and the uh, trauma-informed uh, communities and schools. And, you know, I, I'm just uh, working now with uh, Emory uh, College and the uh, University of uh, San Diego Medical School with Carrie. We're trying to start pilot, piloting uh, medical schools, Baylor College of Medicine, with those two on each side of the country, uh, to where we start teaching in the curriculum at the residency level and the fellowship level, ACEs, and not only ask what's wrong with your patients, but what's happened to your patients and see if we can't get curriculum built. So I want to get that all over. That's one of my goals in life. And I know Carrie's too, that we're working together hand in hand, trying to get that to all, every medical school in the nation. We oh, have. that's fantastic. Yeah, come to University of Cincinnati. That's a big uh, university hospital's a big teaching school. So that would be fabulous. You got to get it needs to be taught somewhere. Yeah. It's been doing that for years. Yeah. So we re up that a little bit and put a little more emphasis on it. But right. Very cool. So one of the questions that I ask um, guests is, are there any myths or facts that you want to clarify around, you know, um, sexual abuse um, and survival? Myths. One of the things I thought about, and I'm going to interrupt your answer here for a second, is, you know, like the hashtag Me Too movement focused so much on girls um, and, you know, in the, the one out of four girls, which is such a sad statistic. But then, you know, it's one out of six boys or one out of seven, depending on which study you look at. But that's still such an unbelievably horrific number. And, you know, I think that's probably a myth in my book. Yeah. I don't think those numbers are even close. Really? I at the people, every time I'm in front of a group, I always try to have kids. Can y'all stand up if you don't know of somebody that has been affected by abuse in their lives? Very rarely do I ever have anybody stand up. Um, I, I think the, the men's side of it is more as close to the women's side. Um, men have an unbelievable, and I, I battled with this, uh, I really had a major problem with understanding my manhood. Um, yeah. And answer I get to be able to let men know that hey, this this doesn't mean that your uh, default uh, or damaged goods. Uh, it's a process you need to work through uh, because it is. It's just a little. It's a little different. Um, and it seems like the women come out because it's just so hard for the men to uh, because of the embarrassment of being a man. Uh, but it, it is. That was a major issue with me. I, I really didn't know if anybody would accept me uh, the same uh, if they realized uh, what had happened to me. And right. I was being raped uh, by dad and four of his friends. Uh, oh my gosh. So, uh, and over that summer plus the summer following, it happened four other times. Um, to be in that type of room with men and them taking turns on you and then uh, doing things all at the same time on you and then leaving you just in a mess, uh, it, it's, it gives me an indication that uh, there's a lot of people that are really, really, really messed up with their sexuality. Um, and I'm sure the internet, because the internet wasn't even discovered back then, uh, the internet has increased that. So I think those numbers are, are absolutely going to uh, soar. And just, just think about the last six months, Terry, what's happened in our country. Um, you know, you have uh, Nasser and the Olympics. You have Bill Cosby and, and some of those, you know, the, the movie stars, right. and Weinstein and, and all of those, and Les, Les Moonves and, and, and those. Now you have the documentary going on about with Michael Jackson. You're going to have people coming out. That's going to be next month. 
coming out of the woodwork. And then you have what should should be the most sacred place in the world, whatever's going on inside the Pope's world and what he's got to deal with. I don't even fathom, but I'm a Baptist, but it, it happens in Baptist churches too. So it's not just a Catholic thing. Well, and I'm Catholic. So for me, I'm where, just like, yeah. Oh, and the iron is as hot as it's ever been for yeah. something like this and what you're doing and what ACES is doing to be able to get people to say, now is the time. Let's bust through these doors and say, it's okay to tell somebody what happened to you. And, yeah. let's, no. and I, I try to do that in, in my book and then uh, my website and everything. You know, tell somebody, journal it, do something to get it down and get it out. Because if it doesn't come out. No. And I, I start every one of my talks with um, that song, um, Simon and Garfunkel, The Sound of Silence. Yes. Have you heard the remake of it? I'd use that one. Oh, it's uh, so powerful. It yes. is unbelievable. And I, and I have his face on there that I have the statistics from during that song. And when he does that, and that one phrase, like cancer, silence grows. Yes. Silence like a cancer grows. Oh, you're giving me goosebumps. And that's exactly what it did. Yeah. And silence doesn't work. No. We have to keep doing this in the podcast world and what you're doing and what so many people are, are doing um, is making an impact because there's going to be so many thousands of people that go, you know, it happened to me. Right. I, I remember somebody saying to me at one point, this is a friend and, you know, I get it. Some people just don't understand, but it was just like, it happened in the past. Can't just let it go. It's like, you don't understand the way ACEs, like how those adverse childhood experiences work because you cannot just let it go. It just, it cannot happen. Um, you've got to go through a process of, of processing. So, yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny every day, all the way through kindergarten, almost through entire high school, I didn't have one teacher ask me, are you okay? Yeah. Wrong? I don't know if it would have made a difference, but when I get in front of teachers, I'd say, you know, we grew up in an upper middle class, predominantly white neighborhood. We had the, the in-ground pool back in those days that nobody had. Right. I drove a Lincoln, you know, and, you know, it was really nice. Upper middle class, really, really prominent jobs, well-known in the community. And huh, the four people that break me with my dad, and since it's going on YouTube, I won't get too specific, but a police officer, mm -hmm. a radio personality, an attorney, and one of dad's friends at, at work. I had nobody to go to that I should have had the freedom to go to get help. Who would believe me over a police officer? I. <laughs> over a radio show star in a little town, you know. Who would believe a 12-year-old kid? Right. And, um, and, I, and if that was me in a little rural country town in Southern Illinois, I can't even imagine what happens in other economic classes, in other social areas? Um, no. Well, I mean, and I agree with you because, you know, I was in lower middle class. Um, my dad struggled with a job, but we lived in an apartment and I worked at a rectory, you know, at 14 years old for priests, um, trying to pay my own tuition to high school and, um, but I know, you know, one of the big stories that came out of Cincinnati was one of the first priests that was accused. And that was a priest that was working, Father George Cooley, working, you know, at, at the, where I worked, he was, that's where he lived. And I remember him bringing boys in. And while he was bringing boys in and taking them upstairs, 
the religious education director was taking me to the basement. And so, you know, yeah, it was happening right there. Um, and then a police officer attempted to rape me. So I so get it. I get what you're saying. I, I never, I just never told anybody because I didn't think anything, any good was going to come out of it. And who was going to believe me? Yeah. Exactly. I was told nobody would. I mean, dad, right. all the time, you know, nobody would. Yeah. Over me. Wow. All right. So I'm going to throw at you my favorite question that I love to ask my guests. So if you could meet anyone dead or alive to help you with this continued journey, who would it be? Well, it's, it's, um, I hate to get religious. Um, uh, but I, obviously I, I would love to look at Jesus's eyes and say, what am I supposed to do with this? Show me the direction that I need to go. Uh, show me the magnitude you want this to be. Help me try to put this all in the right perspective. Um, the only thing that kept me going uh, as, a, as a child was, I don't know if you remember those little, um, little Bibles, little children's Bibles. And they handed these out in fourth grade at our school. And uh, in fourth grade, everybody got a Bible. And I had one that had Jesus, little picture of Jesus on a little kind of cartoonish thing. And then uh, a little boy sitting on his lap. Yeah, so. You remember those? Yeah, I do, yes. That Bible became my hope, I, I became the boy on Jesus' lap. Right. And I looked at that, I kept it on my, my dresser by the bed, and I looked at that every night. I know you won't let me go because I'm on your lap. And I, would, I, I know that may be a, a real hopey answer to the question, but I would like to thank him for, that wasn't by chance. That was him saying, I got you. I have you, you're, you're okay. Um, hang in there, you're gonna survive this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what made a lot of nights uh, when I would lay there. And after, after three or four times, and then it got to be every night, um, I think that's where I got the OCD. I would start fading out. I would look at the, the, the drapes and, and count how many stripes were on drapes and how many holes were on the drapes. Uh, Counting was one of mine as well. I would count. Yes. Oh, I, my footsteps today. Yeah. Exactly how many steps is here to the elevator. Yes. And if I have to stop and go back, it, it sometimes messes up my day. I'm trying to work through that. Right. I, I get that's it. Another, that's another whole different story. <laughs> 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 uh, but uh, I, I remember putting that, that Bible on the edge of my dresser. And a lot of times I would just look at just the spine. I couldn't see the cover because I didn't have it leaning up. But I would, I would remind myself, that's me. That's me on his lap. He's got me. He's got me. Yeah. And, and I, most of the time I didn't even, I don't even know what happened, but. Um, that's uh, dissociation, is that right? Because <laughs> that's what I was told is that I, that's how I survived was by dissociating. And one of the, one of the fascinating things, when I did EMDR, we would have to go back into a trauma. And oh. so we would go back into it and it would almost be as if like, you know, a flashback and, and I sometimes panic attack symptoms would, you know, my heart would race, my palms would sweat, stomach flipping, feel like I was going to die. And I knew I had reached a critical point of healing when I was no longer seeing these things happen to a little girl as if I was watching a movie that I was standing, it was as if I was watching, you know, standing in the room watching someone hold down this little girl or watching these things happen. And the day I knew healing had 
happened and a transition was happening was we went back to the second bank robbery where my coworker was murdered. And I was standing behind the house outside where I was hiding and the bank robber uh, had run past me and he turned and pointed his Luger at me, but it misfired, thank God, but I didn't know that. And so he was pointing his gun at me. But this time when we went back to it, I was looking through my own eyes and looking at him. And I was no longer looking at it as if I was watching a movie. And I thought, oh, I'm no longer dissociating. I'm, I'm actually now in this trauma. I'm, I'm in it now. I'm no longer, I came back to my body, if that makes sense. That's, that's, um, that's good though. Yeah. And that's when, that's when I realized something powerful had happened in, in that, you know, I did four years of that in 98 sessions. So it was a lot, but you know, it was life altering. So, yeah. So one of the um, last questions I have um, is, is there anything that you, um, you know, want to clarify that we didn't touch upon that you would like to tell the audience? I, I think we need to always, uh, as we wind down, offer hope. There's always hope. As long as we're still breathing, there's always that chance to be able to overcome. Um, I, I didn't realize there was hope. Right. A few years ago, and I'm still just learning to discover. This book has been, if anything, more therapeutic for me than it's going to be for anybody else because this changed my life. And even having it picked up now by HCI and them literally going through every word. You sure you want to use this word? Uh, there's not much in here about your mom. Can you expound on that? There's not much about your brothers in here. Can you tell me more about that? So as we went through and re-edited the complete thing, uh, it just helped me process it even more. But to understand that there is hope. And even in my day, I'm starting to realize what triggers my anxiety? Um, 4.30 in the afternoon, the time of day does. That's when dad would pick me right. up. And I never realized that, but just recently. I wonder why I get off. Is yeah. All because uh, it's dinner time and I'm hungry, but I can feel. And somehow... I guess your brain stores those experiences in a different location and they know when the sun's going down uh, and when that time of the day is off, you know, on the watch. And I, I started to feel that anxiety. Bedtime. Hey, bedtime. I, 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 I sleep right here in this recliner. Um, that, that's a big trauma for me. Uh, but when I started understanding what the triggers or certain smells, certain ways people will look at me and, and talk down to me or say something to me that reminded me of dad. And now I start, I, I kind of did an audit of every one of those triggers. And now I'm starting to recognize those throughout my day, even, even today. I say, wait, I was kind of stressed there. What, what happened? Oh, good for you. Okay. Yes. Or was it, because this reminded me of something that happened 50 years ago. Uh, and I'm starting to process everything like that. And it has been a life changer. Yeah. You could just start writing stuff down and then send back and go, hmm, what's all that mean? Yes. I, I just was talking to my son. My son moved to Denver a year ago. And so I love, I miss him tremendously, but I love it because we have these hour and a half long conversations on the phone, very, get very deep. But we were having a conversation and I said, I was talking about, I forget what we were talking about. Um, he had gone to a comedy club and I, I don't know, he, but somehow the, the subject came up and I said, you know, one of the most powerful lessons I learned through the whole process was when my therapist said, just notice. And I remember how powerful those words were when, you know, my symptoms would be arising or, and then it, so that I learned to just, what you were just saying is notice those triggers. Don't judge them. 
Don't judge what's happening. Don't judge the emotions that are stirring. Don't judge what's going on. Just notice because it's your brain, it's your mind, it's your body, you know, body memories, whatever. It's telling you something. Yeah. And so, so journal about it. Think about just let it, let it, let it come to you. Yeah, when, when you have those triggers, did you automatically kind of default to certain thoughts? I would smell, I could smell Old Spice today, the old Old Spice. I could smell Old Spice today, and I, my mind would will immediately default to a negative situation. And I would immediately, a song on a radio, a song mm -hmm. came up today, I almost had to pull the car over. It's like, I can't drive right now. Right. And like whoa and now I'm starting to recognize that and then I'm trying to replace those default thoughts into a foundational uh, affirmation that's positive and go okay I know that's going if that ever happens again I'm going to think this I'm going to try to replace and as I pull out that negative and stick into positive it becomes less and less and less uh, of the anxiety that comes over of people. And that's where I'm saying there's always hope. Oh, sure. Without yeah. a doubt. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, it's just going to happen overnight. Are you kidding? I wish. <laughs> no. And I, I tell people that I, it man. is hard. It is hard, but wow, is it worth it? Oh, you know it. You know it. And, I, and now we get to express where we have journeyed and I'm, my journey is not nearly as as far as yours because you're a lot farther down the healing path than i am but as i find other people along the journey they say hey, come on yeah step with me let's take yes. and if i can't get you there i know an awesome person uh in ohio that i'll see you <laughs> oh, Karen, get on her website. that's what i'm gonna say i got a book for you to read <laughs> actually and that's well, and you know, and I've told this to other podcast guests because there's so many amazing people doing amazing work. And I love it that you're willing to take people's hands and just hold their hand and help them just help them along this path and this journey. Um, and not everybody's journey is the same. But once we're on this path, though, like, I get it. You want to shout from the rooftops, like, you're going to be okay. <laughs> I promise it's going to be okay. Take my hand. Yeah. So, and I think that's what your book is doing. And um, I, I love you for it. And I love what, I love your message. So, yeah. Well, I, think, uh, I think this is going to be, uh, 2019 is going to be a banner year. I think for you, I think for the people that I, I have met already on ACEs that have major things happening. Um, I think ACEs is going to go from, uh, being recognizable to even being more highly recognizable in such a way that we might as well fasten our seatbelts. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I get it. I after that Oprah interview, I I was ecstatic because I said, "Oh my gosh, she's talking about adverse childhood experiences," you know, and and it's just kind of exploded onto the mental health scene. But like you're saying, it's going to go from exploding onto the mental health scene into exploding into our communities yeah. um, and exploding onto, you know, like social media scene and just life. People are going to start to understand, yeah, the impact of it on, on their own lives. Yeah. And they're going to need people that can help them explain it. And, and that's kind of what Carrie and I've been talking about. I said, you know, I, I'm not the most medical, uh, refined person to be able to really talk in great detail of the scientific research, right. but I can put skin on it yeah. and explain it in such a way that a six-year-old could understand it. So to me, that's my role. I'm not going to try to get out of that role. Uh, I'll let the smarter people. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to try to. Those, those people that, hey, let me, let me explain what that doctor just said. This is what it means, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gave, um, I gave a, one of my first speeches at a, a trauma conference on trauma-informed care. And I um, spoke before the keynote speaker. 
um, Lisa Ferenz. And so I just stood there for 45 minutes and told my story and my journey from trauma to triumph. And then she got up and it was the coolest thing because she was the brilliant mind behind all this. And she kept coming over to the table where I was sitting and was like, you know, when Terry said this, blah, 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 blah. Like, here's how it applies. And then when Terry said this, you know, this is, this is what was, this is, and I was like, Oh my God, it was so brilliant. It was like, we were like meant to be together because, um, yeah. And so she was able, I was able to put the, the real story out there. And then she was able to come in and say, here's all that was happening in a child's brain and in a child's body. And yeah, so cool. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to catch myself because I'm writing the second book because HCI assigned me to a two-book deal, which was awesome. Well, yeah, way cool. Yeah, well, I don't even know if they knew I could write when they signed me for that anyway. But I'm like, well, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> it's called Overcoming the Darkness. And I'm trying to take the very technical and break it down to where the average person can understand it, but it still gets the point across to where it doesn't. I, I remember I was talking to Dr. Greeley at, at Texas Children's Hospital, and um, maybe it was a, another doctor there that handed me a textbook. That, hey, here, here's awesome stuff about ACEs. And I, I picked it up and thought, I'll never read this. And it just, Right. <laughs> Are you <kidding>? pictures? <laughs> yeah. And so I was I'm, I'm trying to break it down in such easy form that they don't get caught up on the textbook style, but this is how to put the rubber to the road. This is what it's gonna to mean to you. This is what it's gonna to mean to your kids if you don't get this help. This is what it's gonna to do to your relationships. Uh, this is what it's gonna do with you at, at the office or certain times of the day and try to make it very bite-sized, small pieces, uh, still with my life, because I still have more stories to share. But then how I, when I started to discover how I, I'm overcoming that darkness that I had lived with all my life, and you'll find out in the book that the darkness is my dad, uh, that he's my darkness. Right. And how I started overcoming that, just not that, not that too many years ago. I'm just still in the process of overcoming them. I'm still in it too. You know, I still can't drive on highways and I still can't drive over bridges. I mean, it's a trigger that we still haven't been able to get into of why, why that particular thing um, haunts me. Not that you have those problems, but I'm glad to hear those things that you still can't overcome because I wonder sometimes why can't I sleep all night? Right, right. That, but still, there's still something that I'm not doing right. And you know how I look at that? I look at it as there's still something to learn. I yeah. still have something that I have to address. And um, yeah, and so it's still, it still lingers. Um, and I still struggle every now and then, even as a passenger in a car, if we're on a highway and it's like I-75, which is crazy traffic, I'll have to put my coat over my head because if I don't have the visual stimulus, then I don't experience the, the panic attacks so bad. Um, I don't have the overwhelming panic attacks. I can keep myself grounded and centered, and I have all my little process that I go through, you know, to get myself um, grounded. But yeah, it's still, there's still some stuff lingering. <laughs> what, what do you use to ground you? Do you have any techniques? I mean, you just said put a towel over your head or a coat over your head. Is there anything like at the house? If you start going, do you have any particular, because I have. Yeah, I think my favorite, um, I have a, I, I have a little, um, like on my newsletter that I send out every month, I have a link for a, I created a little coping guide. Um, so I don't know if you get my newsletter, but if, if you do sign up and then download that, it's like anxiety coping guide, I think. And so I talk about all the different things that I've utilized, but my favorite is probably Five, four, three, two, one, mindfulness. And it's the coolest thing. And I practice it when I'm calm in nature. And so, um, like if I'm on a nature hike, I'll find five things to look at and I describe them to myself in great detail. Like, you know, the color, what it's like, what does that, you know, the 
the color of the leaf, you know, the green reminds me of St. Patrick's Day, which reminds me of drinking green beers with my friends, which, you know, and again, so I'm taking myself away from the panic, whatever's triggering, and I'm bringing myself right here to the now. And so that's, and then I think it's five things to look at, four things to um, hear, and so you try to stretch your hearing, um, three things to uh, touch, two things to smell, one thing to taste. And so, again, it's just um, by the time usually I get to four where I'm trying to hear, like, birds singing or a lawnmower or, you know, and I... It's already started to come down. Yeah. By the time you get through five things, you're already... Oh, yeah. Then I'm just, then I'm so distracted by being right here back in the now that I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's gone. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I throw a band all the time. And oh, I have, okay. I would yeah. have a nobody knew that. And I would pop it. But I would, and, and just that pain, it would, it would divert. And right. now, go. It's kind of weird. Uh, nobody would believe that, but I, I, I grab a piece of gum, and that's one of the things that kind of grounds me. I don't know where I even came up with that. Isn't that but funny I, how we find, we just find those things that, uh, yeah, that work for us. And again, counting. I'll be at intersections that are really busy. And again, for whatever reason, cars are a trigger. Um, and I'll be at a heavy, heavy, heavy intersection with crazy traffic and I'm waiting and I start to feel it creeping in. I'll count the traffic lights. And it's simple, but it brings me right back to I'm here at a light. I'm safe. No, no one's here to hurt me. And I just, just bringing myself right there. And then all of a sudden I'm calm again. But yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been amazing. So how do people get a hold of you? How do they, can they pre-order the book or is it? Um... You can do the, the book on, uh, it comes out February 1st. Uh, the pre-orders are right now, uh, barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, books a million. I think pretty well every place you can get a book, you can get it. There's awesome. Room going to Walmart, which I hope that would be awesome. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what, you know, get to you. And, and I, I hope it really helps people. I, I, I have a dream and I dream big. And I know that's the only way I know to dream. Carrie and I both dream big. I, I want to be on the New York Times bestseller list. There's no reason why that can't happen. No, I think it'll happen. Yeah. Go to HCI. I said they did twenty thousand in the first run. I said my goal was to have those twenty thousand sold before the opening day, which is released on February first. That's what I'm shooting for. So I'm letting everybody know. Oh, absolutely. And review it if you would. I'll be ever, ever grateful. But then get on this my site, uh, ShatteredByTheDarkness.com, um, and connect to me there. And I do respond to every email that I get. I, I know you do a lot too. Yes. He just, wow, that's great. I love that. I will respond to people all over the world. I respond to people. Uh, and then I have a counseling line that they can actually call 24-7. Uh, it's me just answering the phone. So okay. That may get a little too busy um, if this takes off like crazy. Uh, we're going to get, if not, I'll get somebody to they can get some names where I can call them back at a certain time. But right. They want access to get a hold of me. And that's on my site. Wonderful. All right. Anything, final thoughts at all? You're an awesome person. And I, <laughs> so, so much. And I can't wait till the day uh, that we're in a convention together, a conference together, or speaking together, or whatever, and get to actually meet each other in person. Keep, keep the journey going. Keep the, the good work going. Because you're making a difference. I read not only your stuff, I read what people say about you. And to me, that is kudos and hats off that you're doing the right thing because people are just, I, I hope you realize how many lives you're touching. You're making me get all teary-eyed and I'm going to cry. You're the first person to make me do that. Thank you. <laughs> start, start counting five, four, three, two, one. Right, right. <laughs> it, it's an awesome... Uh, 
I, I, I'm honored to be on the same program with you and maybe one day we get to work on a project together. Or, uh, oh my gosh, I would absolutely love it. And it's been an absolute honor to have you on uh, the show. I, I think you will hit the New York Times bestsellers list. I think it's amazing what you're doing. Um, and yes, I, I will collaborate anytime. I'll go on a stage with you. I'll, I'll do whatever you would like because, um, yeah, I got your back. I think it's awesome. And um, when I get this, the Breaking the Silence radio show up and running, I will contact you. You'll be one of my first guests on that. Awesome. All right. Wonderful. Okay. I'm going to do a little close out here. Everybody, thank you for joining us today. And until next time, remember to be gentle with yourselves. Thanks. Bye-bye.